David, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you. Uh, you are a principal advocate for open source software at Amazon and the president of Apache Software Foundation. Is that correct? It is. Uh, and, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. And um, I realize I'm only episode two, but I'm I'm thrilled to see what you guys are doing here. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to be here. So tell me, like, how long have you been at AWS? What do you, you know, how, what's your story? Yeah, so I've been at AWS one year and three days. Uh, at least that's what the phone tool uh, website tells me. Uh, so I've been here a year or so and came to work on the open source strategy team and uh, kind of fell into working on our relationship with external open source entities. So you know, projects and foundations and figuring out how we can be a better citizen and work towards more sustainable open source. I love that. Have you always done open source? I haven't. So, you know, typically when I introduce myself, I tell people I'm a recovering sysadmin. And I love um, that. So I started kind of my tech career as aspiring to be a BOFH and, uh, and then was a server hugger for a while. And went from server hugger to working for cloud.com, which was a infrastructure as a service startup. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I see everything through an operations lens and, you know, open source was kind of this side journey. And, uh, so didn't intend to, to really work in open source, just kind of worked out that way. I love that. You mentioned an acronym, B-O-F-H. What is that? Yes. Uh, Bastard Operator from Hell. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, it, it was, a, <laughs> I love it, it. it was a entire like meme before memes happened. There was, there was this entire text, um, life story of a sysadmin, um, working and I, I I'll have to get you a link because it's it's humorous reading it's it's terrible from a um, the guy's very curmudgeonly um, and I, I do admit that I'm a little curmudgeonly but uh, he was pretty antagonistic and aggressive with his users and um, so horrible from what should be happening but uh, you know oh, funny as a as a person who preferred hiding on the other side of the screen, it, it, uh, I'm like, Oh yes, I can completely empathize with this. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I not think I met this person really... while I was doing help desk early in my career. <laughs> <laughs> you may have, um, but, uh, you know, it kind of became, a uh, a meme before memes really were a thing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. Um, I think it influenced a lot of how people saw sysadmins and the sysadmin trade. And I think that actually did a, dis- a huge disservice um, early on uh, because it yeah. it made us all out to be uh, curmudgeonly and not liking people and uh, unhelpful. And I don't think that was yeah, like a generally human the case. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um. Tell me, I always think of open source as a default that you're, you know, it's for developers that there's code. So it's like for to come from an operations lens 
and be so involved in open source. I think that's a really unique story. Well, you know, it's it's a little different um, perspective. You know, most developers, especially most developers now, open source is kind of the it's the building blocks uh, for everything that they're doing. They're they're pulling in libraries from Maven Central or PyPy or um, crates.io and uh, they're using it to help build a top and uh, you know they, they go build something cool and in most of the industry they're not having to operate it. Uh, so I think that's a uh, you know that shift in from development to operations is is kind of a big um, a big gap. It still is a big gap, even though you know, DevOps has been a thing for quite a while. Most of the industry isn't operating that way. Yes, I think yeah, about that I, a lot. I, I love it. I started out, so I started out like assembling computers. And it was a local shop in my town where I would put PC clones together um, and sell them and support them. Uh, and when I graduated, I was a comp sci major it was not doing programming, uh, which was something that I loved doing, but I felt like all the jobs were in what, you know, service admin, uh, Cisco networks, WAN, uh, help desk that like my whole thing out of college was that I could, I could get my MCSE, my Microsoft certified systems engineer and move up to kind of a tier two help desk. And, uh, for me, it was actually the community that was around, um, building the early web. And I was like, I, when I remember my first time I saw HTML and uh, I think it was called hot dog was like the editor back then. And I was like, I could actually do this. Like I could code and it's fun and I can see it. And people are actually sharing things. Whereas before my perspective inside corporations was that there was some kind of source control that somebody owned and you didn't even share your source throughout the company. Right. It was like somebody wrote like a really cool piece of code and nobody was allowed to touch it because they were afraid people would modify it. And it was such a welcome thing. And um, to, to just see that and, and how it's grown. And so I have to ask, like, why AWS? What does it mean for to have open source software at AWS? For me, when I saw the cloud and I was coming from a Windows background at the time, too, and I'm like, everything's Linux here. And it was the way that I learned Linux was because of AWS. You know, I don't think it's really that different from open source anywhere else. Uh, you know, when most folks see open source software, they see it as a way to get faster time to value, right? So I don't have to um, build a web browser. I don't have to build a web server. I can go add value atop that. And I think that story, I, I obviously wasn't here for it. I've only been here for a year, but I think that that story is very similar for, uh, for AWS. It, it allows us to go faster and, and deliver value to customers much more quickly. And, and that's been the story since S3, right? So S3 is obviously built atop open source. Uh, even if it's you know that low level operating system, uh, what is so? What are some projects that you're working on now at AWS? What has you 
got you excited around um, open source. I know in my organization, I met some members of the Rust uh, team, which was just incredible to see their passion and the scope of that project and what that community looks like. You know, so I, I hesitate to say that I'm working on because I feel like if I'm working on something, I should be contributing code. And I'm, I'm certainly not doing that with groups like Rust. Uh, so the Rust folks have me incredibly excited, not just because they're doing interesting things, but they're also doing boring things. And uh, I talked a little earlier about how I care about sustainability. And I think that the Rust team at AWS has a huge focus on making the Rust ecosystem not just more successful, but more sustainable. And they're doing a lot of the boring things along with it. So, uh, you know, I tell everyone that, you know, open source, a lot of open source is not the whiz bang stuff that is in a, uh, in the tech journals that you see on, um, on airplanes. It's, it's the stuff that nobody talks about. Nobody realizes is, uh, is happening. And it's that electricity and plumbing. And you know, for better or worse, we as an industry have come to think that when we walk into a room, we should be able to turn a light switch on and it works. And open source is kind of that, uh, you know, the electrical um, wires and buses that are carrying current and actually delivering something useful. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about them doing things like, um, you know, working on a new vision for async and um, working on um, memory safety, right? So there's a, there's a couple of folks on that team who are working on um, a Rust project called Hyper. And basically it, it's uh, being used by the maintainer of curl to uh, provide an option for you to use curl over um, curl using Rust, using a memory safe language, because the majority of security vulnerabilities that they've been, that have been discovered uh, in a number of these core libraries has come down to uh, being memory problems. And so using a memory safe language, um, I won't say it completely eliminates, but it it essentially eliminates an entire class of security issues. And that kind of... That's fantastic. Uh, that kind of just do. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. And, and you know, so from an Amazon perspective, um, there's a, you know, we have this internal leveling system. There's an L5 SDE who's working on this. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's going on and nobody has really any idea that it's happening. And I'm just, I'm blown away by things like that because I think that caring for the the plumbing and the electrical wiring and ensuring that it continues to work in open source is incredibly important uh, to long-term sustainability. We don't want to wake up and, and find that uh, two guys who are basically trying to to uh, uh, provide cryptography for the entire world are living on government assistance. And, you know, so, so focusing on that sustainability problem is, uh, is really interesting. 
Uh, I'm also encouraged by um, uh, there's a team that's standing up right now working on Jupiter. And again, just making sure that uh, not just new development, new feature development is happening, but making sure that releases are being churned out. Uh, so lots of lots of that interesting work that's you know people will write articles about, but the layer below that where people are just making sure that things are continuing to operate uh, and, and you know maintenance is happening is is pretty exciting to me. What about like I mean you 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 bring up a couple of super interesting topics you know security maintainability what does it mean when almost every project in the world is using a specific library and who's actually maintaining that. Does Amazon, does AWS, do we have people looking at specific packages and contributing? When you were talking before, I know you were talking about some open source projects that we actually have uh, five people contributing to too. Do we have, do we look at maintainability like that? And do we have, do we understand across AWS the types of open source contributions we need to be doing based on what we're actually, you know, taking from uh, the community and using in order to deliver. So there's, for the past couple of years, uh, there's been this focus on trying to understand the open source footprint. And, and, you know, there's this evolution that happens at most companies where they first care about uh, legal compliance because they don't want to be sued. Then they care about security because they don't want to uh, suddenly discover that they're using a 13-year-old version of OpenSSL and that everyone can read the credit card numbers, right? So uh, that's that's kind of the next uh, iteration. And then it comes down to, um, are, we, are we strategically picking what we're going to use? Are we using things that, um, that we already have a lot of expertise, right? So there's no point in in picking a uh, a different database if we've got tons of MySQL experience, or there really needs to be a a good business case for it, right? So, um, right that type of uh, that type of strategic thinking is has been coming along for for a number of years at AWS. So, you know, long predates me. Uh, there's there's you know this internal um, open source strategy group who's looking at things like you know is this thing that we're we're adopting internally is that is that sustainable do we need to be paying attention to supply chain risk with this um, but you know the other problem is at a organization the size of AWS and with the scope of AWS it's hard to hard to understand all of those points especially especially when you consider um, you know, just how deep some of those um, dependencies are. Like, you know, I, I use an iPhone and I use both Apple Maps and Google Maps and, um, you know, AWS uses a lot of mapping stuff as well and, and so does Amazon. And really all of that is built atop a library called GDAL. And uh, none of that works, right? You know, can't get can't get packages delivered without GDAL existing and being maintained. And so uh, there are there are a lot of those pieces that 
you know, we're just starting to discover, oh yeah, you know, there's, there's essentially one guy who maintains GDAL. We need to, we need to be looking at how we make that more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I love that you, we take so much for granted um, that just exists without thinking about, you know, the, the handful of humans that are propping up, <laughs> you know, these, these libraries and resources that are used yeah. ubiquitously uh, across everything. So um, I'm curious to hear more about the Apache Software Foundation. Your president, how long have you been in that role? What is it like to fill that role? How, how does the foundation operate? What is its sort of priorities? Tell me everything. Um, so uh, the Apache Software Foundation has been around for 21 years and uh, has you know, 280-ish um Top-level projects that have a you know, 350 um, products that that come from that, plus another 50 or so in the incubator, and so it's a huge steward of open-source software, and that's everything from uh, Spark and Hadoop and the big data world to Tomcat to Subversion, and of course the original web server. And so, uh, you know, if you're using an electronic device that has software on it, you probably have software that, uh, that originated at the Apache Software Foundation, or you have, um, you certainly have software that's using the Apache license, which also kind of showed up there. Uh, I've been involved. I, I tell people I'm kind of the new guy at the ASF because I feel like I haven't been around very long. Um, I've only been there nine years. Yeah. Um, my predecessor. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I was um, like, <laughs> it has to be <laughs> something incredible. Um, you know, my predecessor was was there almost from the beginning, as was his predecessor and his predecessor. So most of them, uh, you know, had kind of been around for uh, most of the the time that the foundation has been incorporated. And so I'm kind of the new guy and, um, and I've only been around for nine years. Uh, and I came to the foundation um, right after cloud.com was acquired by Citrix and Citrix said that they wanted uh, the open source project from cloud.com to move to the Apache software foundation. So I moved the project there and then said, you know, I, I really want to get involved and uh, Rich Bowen, who remains one of the nicest folks I know in open source, sat down with me and said, you know, you talk about being a recovering sysadmin. Would you like to get involved with our infrastructure team? And so I started getting involved there, ended up running that team, which is the foundation's only set of employees. Um, so I was a volunteer managing um I don't remember, I think four at the time, four employees, uh, which is a weird situation. Uh, and then two years ago, I became the executive vice president. And uh, last year, I became the president. So I haven't been president long, but uh, I'm entering into my second year. Amazing. 
Um, I live in Denver. I love Denver. It's my weird little city. It's very sunny. Um, but a lot of people ask me all the time. They're like, why aren't you in San Francisco or Seattle or I don't know any other major city? Um, and I know that you live in South Carolina. Um, what's it, what's it like being a, you know, a remote employee? does open source help, uh, you know, give people that sort of freedom in some ways to live wherever they please. Uh, tell me more about that. You know, so I think um, I don't think open source necessarily gives you the freedom to live wherever, but it does prepare you really well um, for kind of that distributed asynchronous type of work environment. Because if I'm collaborating with someone who's in Japan or in Europe, there's going to be time zone shifts. Uh, we're not all going to be on IRC or Slack at the same time. And we don't have this, you know, the luxury of kind of collaborating around a water cooler and, and exchanging tidbits of information. So yeah. I think it makes um, that distributed decision making uh, and being able to communicate really well via mailing lists and, and other uh, written forms, I, th I think, help a lot. Uh, because you're used to having to document that rather than, you know, walking down the hallway and talking to someone. It's true. Um, but, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting, we pulled statistics at the end of the year from uh, the Apache Software Foundation to see what the impact in terms of code velocity was. Uh, because of the pandemic, and we actually saw numbers rise, not not huge rise, but still greater than the year prior. And I credit a lot of that to the fact that we were already doing distributed asynchronous work for yeah. years before the pandemic came along. That's amazing. I was thinking about this the other day. So I've been remote for over 15 years, and there are people that I've collaborated with that I didn't know what they look like. I just know them by their work. And I never assume anybody's gender um, or where they're from and their culture. And I, it's like, I've just been fortunate that any biases I had were kind of muted based on the way that I was interacting with people. And I had never really thought about it before. Um, even the names, you know, you can't really... Uh, make any assumptions. And it's been, that's, it's been really great for me and, and kind of a distributed way. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I work with a, uh, I work with a lady now who I've known for a decade and a half or so. And uh, our original interaction was solely via email and you know, I would have been, had I assumed gender, I would have been completely wrong. Um, uh, had I assumed geography, I would have again been completely wrong. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Um, basically how you get proven wrong so many times that, that, that suddenly you stop making those kind of assumptions, right? Yeah, it helps you grow as a, as a person yeah, based on absolutely. quality of work, right? Yep. 
Well, David, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I think you're phenomenal and I'm so happy you're at AWS and I get to, to learn from you. How can people find you um, on Twitter or wherever? And if they're interested in getting involved in open source or the Apache Foundation, what's the best way for them to approach that? Sure. So uh, you can find me on Twitter via my Twitter ID, which is my amateur radio call sign. So globally unique, but hard to remember. It is K-E- the numeral four, and then three Qs, K-E-4, Q-Q-Q. That's cool. You know, if they want to get involved at the Apache Software Foundation, uh, the thing I would do is find a project that interests you. And there's, you know, whether you care about low-level libraries or really high-end machine learning or neural language processing, all of that is there. And there's a place you can go get involved and just uh, start by subscribing to and participating on a development mailing list. Love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Thanks.